morning is Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For, for in the day of, the, of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Don't reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I will still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Well, friends, uh, keep the Bible open. We'll be working our way through this psalm. We've been looking at the psalms for, for quite a while and once again, it is the word of God and we need his help for us to understand. So let's pray to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your word and so help us to receive your word as it really is, the word of God, word which brings us comfort and word which brings us salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are your greatest fears in life? Well, on the world stage, a survey was recently conducted and this survey was of over 48,000 people from 44 different countries to reveal what the greatest fears of this world are. And this was the result. The biggest fear and concern among the Japanese is nuclear weapons. People in South Africa, Kenya and Uganda, their biggest concern is AIDS and diseases. In much of Europe and the US, their greatest concern, their greatest fear is inequality, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. In the Middle East, their big concern, their big fear is religious and ethnic hatred. And then in many Asian countries, their biggest fear, their biggest concern is pollution and environmental issues. And so they're the greatest fears of our world. That's on the world stage. And now let me turn the question around and come closer to home. What about you? What are your greatest fears? What are the things that would get you to 
drip with sweat, your, your heart racing, the hairs on the back of your neck standing, your knees shaking, your stomach churning. What would get those things happening? Well, perhaps for some of us it might be the fear of failure. Perhaps for some of us it's the fear of what others think of us. Perhaps for some of us it's the fear that something might happen to our family. Or for some of us it might be the fear of illness and sickness and my health deteriorating. For some of us it might just be the fear of death itself. And these are all legitimate fears, aren't they? The fears of our world, the fears of our own self. And they can be crippling, they can be paralysing, they can be debilitating. Now wouldn't you like to live a life without those fears? Wouldn't that be good? A life without those concerns, without the paralysing effect of fear. Now I don't mean here a life where we're just careless and we don't do anything about it. And I don't mean here a senseless life where we don't, we're not concerned about these real concerns. But what I mean is, wouldn't you want to live a life where deep down you have this quiet confidence that all will be okay? And again here I don't mean the, the wishful thinking, the Aussie way, she'll be right mate. Not that way of thinking. But what I mean is a deep, genuine, quiet confidence that all will be okay. Wouldn't you want that type of life? Well, you know what? In this psalm, we meet King David. And in one sense, despite all his failures, he was able to live a life where he confined his fear. He saw his fear in perspective. He placed it in perspective and we have much to learn from King David. And so we're going to have a look at this psalm and this psalm will be a source of comfort for us. So let's have a look. Psalm 27. Now, when you look at this psalm, And you consider the words of this psalm, you can see that things weren't going well for King David at all. Things were terrible for him. David wrote this psalm in one of his darkest moments. It was perhaps written when he was being chased by King Saul, who wanted his life. Or it was perhaps written when he was chased by his own son Absalom, who wanted his life. And so King David is writing in fear. There's lots to be afraid of. But yet, do you notice the words in this psalm? It's wonderful. It's quite profound because David shows here that he can live a life without fear despite having everything to be afraid of. He was able to live fearlessly despite having everything to be afraid of. And so let's consider David. People want this guy dead. I mean, just imagine that type of life where you have so many people against you, so many people who hate you, so many people who want you dead. Armies want to devour him and eat him alive. They consider his life worthless. They want him gone. But yet look at what David says. Have a look. Psalm 27. Open up your Bibles. Verse 1. David says he was resolved in his mind and he was resolved in his heart. Look at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I mean, he's thinking, if God is my light, If God is the source of all that is good and right and righteous and holy and pure, and if God is the saviour, David was resolved in his mind and in his heart that there was nothing to fear. And look at verse 2, he goes on to say, When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. David knew, he's got this confidence that his enemies will stand no chance against him. And in verse 3, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. 
Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. And isn't this a profound psalm? Just these three verses. How radical David's thinking. How fearless his life. All around him were enemies wanting him dead. They want him gone. But yet he could still say, whom shall I fear? And he says, then I will still be confident. That's David's fearlessness. He's got to sort it. But now imagine if you were in David's situation. Just say you can claim what David claimed here. Just say you can claim, I, I'm living the fearless life. I'm able to do this too. But it doesn't really solve the problem, does it? I mean, even if we were to get our, uh, into the same mindset as David and claim, I'm living the fearless life, it doesn't really solve the problem. I mean, you might feel fearless, but for David, the enemies are still outside the city gates. They still want him dead. They still want to devour him. And so, if you were in David's situation, what would you do? What would you be asking God for? What would you be praying to God for? Or perhaps God... I know you're wonderful, I know you're powerful, I know you can do anything and I know I can, I can trust in you. But how about, I mean, I've got these guys who want me dead, how about sending me an army? How about sending me some weapons? Give me a tank or something and it help me to destroy them. How about praying something like that? That's probably what you'll pray, right? If people want you dead, you pray for God to defend you, to send you weapons and to help you out. But look at what David prayed for. What did David ask for? Now, this should be a shock to us because what he prays for here is quite radical. Have a look, verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, and remember, there are armies who want him dead. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The one thing when people want him dead, the one thing when people want to devour him, is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to be in the presence of God, to be with God. I mean, all the while people want him dead. Isn't that strange? Will you pray such a prayer when people want you dead? So why? Why did David pray such a prayer? I mean, was David out of his mind? He was scared. You know, he was out of his mind, wasn't thinking straight. Or could it be that he was just avoiding the, the reality? He was too afraid to avoid it. He just does, he didn't want to face it. He wanted to just be with God and not solve the problem, not face the problem. Or could it be that David was just super spiritual? You know, someone we, we can't identify with, none we can relate to. Or was David onto something here? Was David onto something precious that we need to know? Was David onto something quite radical that we need to know too? You see, David, he was the original Bear Grylls. Have you seen that show, Bear Grylls, living and eating all sorts of stuff? Well, this guy was the original one. This guy was not your normal shepherd boy. As a teenager, David killed bears and lions with his bare hands. Any one of us done anything like that? As a teenager, I managed to kill some ants and cockroaches. A pigeon accidentally, that was an accident. But David, he had guts. This guy had guts. He was a warrior. But yet, though he was so strong and so brave, he learnt that you can never place your trust in any weapons. You can't place your trust in human wisdom 
or human strength or human skills in human anything. You can't place your trust in humans at all. In the face of enemies, he learnt that my refuge, my strength, my rock, my security, my comfort comes from God. And even in the face of bears and lions, what did he say? He said it was God who delivered him. It was God who delivered him. And so David came to understand that the one who sits on the throne over the universe, it is him who is his rock and salvation. And if God is his refuge, if God is the one he gazes upon and he sees the beauty of God, the glory of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the power of God that will just blow his mind when he sees and gazes upon God, he will see his fear melt away. I mean, who can stand a chance against God? Just think about David. He had these people against him. I'm, I'm sure none of us have experienced anything like that. He had people who wanted him dead, but yet, looking at the glory of God, the beauty of God, his fear melts away. And look at what he says now in verses 5 and 6. I mean, if he's got God, what more does he want? Look at verse 5 and 6. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. And then he's overjoyed. Look at him. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. And so David was able to live fearlessly because God was his refuge. He was with God. That's what he wanted. And so he was filled with joy rather than fear. And so now knowing this, look at what David goes on to say. He pleads that that will always be the case. He pleads that God will never forsake him. He pleads that God will never turn his back from him. He pleads that God will never turn his face away. Have a look, verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Saviour. That was his plea. But now listen to his confidence. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And so David recognises, even if the most trustworthy people I know, my parents, if they forsake me, God will receive me. And so he prays that God will teach him and lead him and protect him. Verses 11 and 12. Teach me your ways, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. And so David, he recognised if he's got God, if God is his refuge, he's got it all. He's got it all and there's nothing to fear. And so now he ends this psalm with complete confidence in God, complete confidence in the goodness of God and complete confidence that God's purposes will always be done. And so he takes heart. Look at the final two verses. Verse 13. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And so that was King David's psalm. Despite how hopeless his situation was, despite how frightening his situation was, he lived fearlessly. But we must now ask, what was his secret? We want to know that, don't we? What was his secret? How can the words of this psalm 
become our words as well as we face each day, as we face our life? How can these words be ours as we toil and endure and persevere and strive and live life? We see what David did? He started with right theology. He started with right theology. Look at verse 1 again. He had the right understanding of God. God is light. That is, God is the source of life and all that is good and pure and righteous and just. God is salvation, he says. God is the stronghold, he says. God is the Lord of the universe, he says. And so David got his theology right, didn't he? He got, got, he got, got God right. But you see, David got more than just right theology. And that type of theology, getting God right, is right and important, but it's not enough. You see, knowing about God, knowing that God is light, knowing that God is salvation, that's actually not enough. Because God just then remains some distant reality who is faceless and far and cold. But yet David had something else. He not only knew about God, he knew God. Do you notice how he started in verse 1? You see, right theology always starts with a big M-Y, with a big my in front of it. God is not just the light, but he is my light. God is not just the salvation, but he is my salvation. God is not just the stronghold, but he is my stronghold. God is not just the refuge, but he is my refuge. You see, theology is meant to be personal. God is my God, not just some distant, faceless, cold, far God, but he is my God. And when God becomes my God, the God who sits on the throne over the universe, when he becomes my God, what do I have to fear? Because you see, what happens when God becomes your God? When God becomes my God, what happens? Well, what happens is that we find our identity. We actually find who we are. When we know God, when we know God as my God. Now, Paul Tripp, an American pastor, very wise, he said this, Theology not only defines who God is, but also redefines who we are as his children. I'll say that again. Theology not only defines who God is, but also redefines us as his children. You see, that is right theology. Not just knowing about God, but knowing God as my God. And when I come to see that God is mine, I also come to the very precious reality of knowing that I'm God's. When I come to understand that God is mine, then I've become his child. And this is who I am. When I come to know God as my God, I come to understand myself and know my identity. And so this is worth remembering, isn't it? I've got this tagline that I teach our youth. Who I am is bound up with whose I am. Do you get that? Who I am is bound up with whose I am. Who I am is bound up with who I belong to. And so if God is mine and I'm his, that is who I am. And so if God is the Lord of the universe and he is my God, my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, and I become God's, then what do I have to fear in life? Bears and lions? What are the things we face? What do I have to fear when God is my God? But now I suspect for some of us here, we hear this and some of us might be thinking, 
This is just wishful thinking. I mean, to have such confidence to be able to live like David, is this just some Sunday pep talk to the church? Is this just wishful thinking? How, how can I be so certain? How can I have the certainty and assurance of David? Well, you see, there's in fact something we now know that should give us greater confidence. There is something that we now know that should give us greater assurance than even what David had. You see how David ended this psalm? Have a look at verse 13 and 14 again. David ended by saying, I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. You see, for David, he had to wait to see what God would do. He had to wait to see God's goodness. He had to wait to see what God would do. He had to wait for his deliverance in this time of darkness. He had to wait and he will see. But how is it different for us now? How is it different for us now? What greater confidence do we now have? You see, for us now on this side of the cross of Christ, there is no more waiting. There is no more waiting for us to see what God will do in his goodness. There's no more waiting to see what God will do. There is, there's no more waiting to see how God will deliver us. You see, God in, his greatest, in David's greatest son, his very own son, Jesus Christ, he went to the cross for us. We've seen God's great deliverance. We've seen how good God can be, that he would send his son for us to be on the cross, bearing all the world's horrors and terrors and shame and guilt upon himself, things we deserve, and to on the cross cry out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If God did that for us, if God would send his son to do that for us, to be forsaken, well, we'll never be forsaken. We have seen, we don't have to wait, we have seen the goodness of God. We have seen what God has done in his son Jesus for us. Because Jesus was forsaken, we will never be. And so if God is willing to do that for me, for you, what do we have to fear in life? And so isn't this the life you want now? Isn't this the type of life you want to live for the rest of your life? To be able to live from now on fearlessly with this quiet confidence inside because of what God has done for you. Well, the reality is that we can. We can, we can, we can. When God is my God, my refuge, my salvation, my stronghold, when he is mine, then I've become his. I've got nothing to fear at all in the face of the pains of life, in the face of the sorrows of life, in the face of the struggles of life, in the face of all the uncertainties of life, even in the face of death itself. When God is my God, when God is your God, what is there to fear? This is the God of the universe. What is there to fear? When I'm God's, when God is mine, I'm God's. That's the deep and quiet confidence we Christians have. Now, many of you would have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is one of my heroes. He was a Lutheran pastor and a theologian who lived during Nazi Germany. Now, he was a man who really understood this who understood where his identity rested. Now, he was part of a resistance group that was aimed at trying to get rid of Hitler to remove him from power. 
But eventually, Bonhoeffer, he was found out and he was jailed. And, so the, and there wasn't much hope for him of, for release at all. And so you can just imagine, he's in a cell, he's there for years, imagine his sorrow. Imagine his despair there. He's trying to do what is right, trying to get rid of Hitler. But he's confined, there's nothing for him to do. And it's frightening, he's, there's no, no hope of escape. But yet within the prison wars, he wrote this poem. One month before his execution, he wrote a poem titled, Who Am I? And it goes like this, the last verse. Am I one person today and another tomorrow? Am I both at once? In front of others, a hypocrite. And to myself, a contemptible, fretting weakling. Or is something still in me like a battered army, running in disorder from a victory already achieved? Who am I? These lonely questions mock me. Whoever I am, you know me. I am yours, O God. There was a poem he wrote, Who Am I? He recognised that his identity rested in God. If God is his, then he is God's. He knew where his identity lay. And so even as he walked, was led to the gallows. His final words to his good friend George Pell was, which really revealed to us his quiet confidence in God, revealed to us his fearlessness in, in life. His final words were, This is the end. But for me, the beginning of life. And he was led and executed. But what a great way to live a life, to have that fearlessness. Not because we're fooling ourselves, it's not wishful thinking, but because we are gods. We are gods. And what better way to begin each day, to begin each week, to begin each year, as I face whatever comes my way this day, as I face whatever comes my way this week, this year. God is mine and I'm God's. I've got nothing to lose. I've got nothing at all to lose because I have it all already. I have God and so do you. Well, let me pray. Gracious and precious Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are not some distant, faceless, cold God but you are the God who came near in your son Jesus and you have become our God, our light, our salvation, our stronghold, our refuge. We praise that you'll never forsake us. We praise you that you'll never turn your back from us because in your son Jesus, he was forsaken so that we don't have to. And so help us now, help us each day to more deeply know who we are as we find our identity in you that we are yours, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.